Hello, have you got that Thursday feeling? I certainly have. You're listening to the Red Box Politics Podcast with me, Patrick Maguire, in for Matt Chorley for just two more days this week, so you don't want to miss the great podcast we've got in store for you today. We're asking, why can't Britain's politicians fix its crumbling prison system? Got a really interesting discussion on that coming up. But first, it's time to talk plagiarism, Israel and AI with two of our very favourite columnists, Manveen Rana and Matthew Bell. Manveen Rana and someone called Matthew on Times Radio. Yes, this morning I'm joined by Manveen Rana, host of the Stories of Our Times podcast. Morning, Manveen. Hello. And someone called Matthew. Today that Matthew is Matthew Bell. Hi, Matthew. Good morning. Lovely to see you both. Let's get straight into it. There's a lot going on this morning. Not least the conflict in the Middle East. A war of words broke out yesterday between Israel and the UN with the Israeli government calling on Secretary General Antonio Guterres to resign. He'd said that the Hamas attack of October the 7th did not happen in a vacuum, which Israel interpreted as an attempt to justify the attacks. Deputy Prime Minister Oliver Dowden was asked about the UN's attitude to Israel on Times Radio this morning. I've always had a a little bit of scepticism about the volume of resolutions that uh, are tabled at the United Nations in respect of Israel versus in respect of uh, other states. Uh, I certainly don't uh, agree with the comments of the UN Secretary General as as they have been reported. I understand they've been, been clarified subsequently, but there can be absolutely no blaming of anyone for this terrorist attack other than those terrorists in Gaza. Well, Manveen, it's really interesting this because most people would hear the words United Nations and think they're the good guys. Who could have beef with the United Nations? Why are Israel having a pop at the United Nations? But their role in these conflicts, their role in this conflict in particular, is far from straightforward, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, it is complicated. To be honest, I think the United Nations role in most conflicts is is quite difficult at the moment because you have the Security Council who can sort of veto resolutions or who can decide on what action is taken. And, you know, you have two members of it. You have Russia and China who are obviously completely at odds with the rest of the Security Council. So, you know, that that is a, a constant point of tension. And around this particular conflict, you know, we are seeing partly because of sort of this new axis that's forming between Russia, China and Iran. Um, you know, we are sort of seeing that Russia, despite you know, years of building relations between Netanyahu and Putin, um, Russia has made it quite clear that because they resent that Israel wasn't more forthcoming in their support of their invasion of Ukraine, um, have been very open in sort of criticising them um, over their behaviour over the last couple of weeks. And then bizarrely offering to to be the peace peace brokers, which would be rather ironic. Um, But, you know, this has been a problem for the UN for a very long time. You do, you are trying to bring together global interests. And, you know, when that includes Russia and China having an equal say to America and Britain, you know, that that's always going to lead to a point of tension. I think what's more interesting, and what we should probably be much more aware of, is that they also have to represent the interests of the Arab world. And I, I sometimes think we and the government here aren't taking very much notice of what the Arab world feels about this. Um, you know, our closest allies in the Middle East for many years now have always been the Jordanians. And it's very interesting that in the last few days, both the king and the queen, who very rarely sort of make controversial political statements, have come out being very clear in 
their anger for the way the West has talked about the situation and sort of saying you're you're portraying terrible double standards and it's quite clear that you value uh, Israeli lives more than Palestinian ones. And I think when the Jordanians are saying that, it probably does mean we sh- we should probably take a look at what we should pause and think about how this is um, how this is playing out in the Arab world because we are at risk as ever of sort of ignoring. You know, this happened over sort of Ukraine and Russia. We sort of assumed we knew where the global south was and then suddenly realized that we didn't um, and they weren't ma- massively supporting what we were saying. And we haven't made much effort to to go, you know, to sort of um, build relations and work out what they're thinking and work out if we have allies in that part of the world. So I think it's uh, it's both, you know, UN dysfunction, but there's also a sense of perhaps this is a moment where we should stop and think about how this is playing out across the world. And no, that's the really striking thing. I think there are some people in government who are or were surprised that, you know, they would lobby, say, President Modi or other governments and then be surprised they weren't necessarily holding the sort of Western line on Ukraine. So it's easy to forget lots of these countries have their own priorities, own geopolitical relationships, own domestic problems too. I I think for years we expected the UN to to reflect our version of world politics and actually it can't do that. It has to be more global. Um, You mentioned uh, the... Uh, the UN and the Arab world, world and Israel. I just dug up this clip just now, a very striking clip of the uh, Israeli President Chaim Herzog uh, speaking at the UN uh, in the 70s when it resolved that Zionism was racism. Let's hear that. For us, the Jewish people, this is no more than a piece of paper and we shall treat it as such. Thank you, Mr. President. Yeah, so the UN has always had a slightly vexed relationship with Israel, it's fair to say that was Chaim Herzog, the Israeli president, with his uh, unmistakable Irish accent as a native, as a native Dubliner. I mean, Matthew, what do you what do you make of how the international community is coming together or not uh, over the course of this conflict? Because it seems you know, every world leader or every Western leader sort of beating a path to Pres- uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu's door, and yet. Nothing seems to be happening by way of uh, the ceasefire some people are calling for, you know, in terms of dissuading Netanyahu from his from his plans for a ground invasion. It can sort of seem that the West is almost spectators in all of this. Um, I think it's very, um, it's, it's exactly as Manbin says, which is that the United Nations is, has an incredibly important role to play, but it has a fundamentally flawed premise, which is that it's made up of 193 member states each trying to promote their own interests. Um, and I think it was a mistake of Guterres to say what he did say, because he, what he was doing was showing his own personal view, which is what he precisely what he's not supposed to do. Um, on the other hand, I think it's a shame that um, one cannot say, um, that, that point out that Palestine has been um, occupied now for 56 years without Israel immediately um, trying to sever ties with the UN. And that's not a grown-up way to deal with an institution as important as the UN. Um, it's incumbent on Israel to maintain all uh, channels open. And, they, they, you know, it, it, you end up looking at the people behind this. Netanyahu, who is a populist right-wing leader, Antonio Guterres in a previous life was, I think, president of um, Socialist International, which is a coalition of left-wing governments. So... Mm. If you dig down beneath who are the two people at loggerheads here, there's someone on the right and someone on the left. And in the end, 
that's it's it's a pity that the United Nations cannot rise above um, politics in that way because it should be it should have this absolute authority and if and if the UN says something then that should be um, sacrosanct and it shouldn't be possible to close channels with the UN as is what it's trying to do so. Um, I, I did. I think there's a degree of overreaction by Israel as well. Um, but but I think what's interesting in, also in this war is that very early on, people have picked their sides. Biden has picked their side. That Britain, to, the, to a certain extent, has picked their side, um, and that's Israel. Um, and that's been very supportive for the Israeli people, and I think they're very encouraged by that. Um, but exactly as Manvin says, you know, we cannot ignore the fact that this attack was made by a terrorist group. It was not made by uh, the government of Palestine, and therefore for Israel to react in this way by launching a full-scale attack on Gaza, it's disproportionate, and it cannot be condoned by the West either, because, um, well, it, it, it's, it's obviously not the same as a, as a, a government-backed attack. So um, it's, you know, as ever, it, it's it's very, very difficult to, to, to be fair on to both sides. But I do think it should be possible to say uh, to criticise Israel's actions, especially Netanyahu, without being accused of being uh, anti-Zionist or uh, anti-Semitic. It's a yeah. It's certainly it's certainly a minefield, and no doubt, uh, criticism of uh, Israel uh, will hear. We'll hear, plen- we'll hear plenty of that, and indeed we're hearing lots of that in, in Westminster uh, as people call for humanitarian um, pauses and ceasefires. Uh, let's stay in Westminster, where Rishi Sunak has been making a speech in London this morning about the risks of artificial intelligence. He said he'd form international bodies to mitigate the threat of developing technology. Let's hear him. We announced that we will establish the world's first AI safety institute right here in the UK. It will advance the world's knowledge of AI safety. And it will carefully examine, evaluate and test new types of AI so that we understand what each new model is capable of exploring all the risks from social harms like bias and misinformation through to the most extreme risks of all. The British people should have peace of mind that we're developing the most advanced protections for AI of any country in the world, doing what's right and what's necessary to keep you safe. Now, let's take a look at some of them. It suggests uh, that by then it will have the potential to enhance terrorist capabilities in developing weapons, planning attacks and producing propaganda. Mass disinformation under one scenario. The report suggests that by 2030, tech companies could develop an artificial superintelligence capable of achieving complex tasks and deceiving humans, which will pose a catastrophic risk. And over-reliance on AI was judged to be a threat as humans granted more control over critical systems they no longer fully understand and become irreversibly dependent. That all sounds uh, pretty pretty foreboding, Manveen, doesn't it? Absolutely terrifying. Um, I think, you know, we've heard people who are very heavily involved in the AI world, you know, many of the people who are sort of foundational to it, coming out recently and sort of saying it could be an existential threat. And I think when people have heard that, for some reason, most people have dismissed it. And I think that's because... When we say AI, they're mainly sort of thinking of chat GPT things, sort of thinking, well, that's not going to change the world. Um, you know, it's not going to destroy us all. Uh, but, you know, AI is, is a capability, which is just, it's, um, it's growing exponentially. It's going to be able to augment every part of life in a way that we can't begin to predict. You know, we can't even see how all of this ends. They've sort of painted some scenarios in this government, uh, you know, in the, in the speech and in, in sort of some of the government releases around it, um, which are all very foreboding. You know, by 2030, you sort of have 
uh, huge swathes of the population out of a job and turning on, um, you know, turning on, uh, seeing AI as an, as a, a massive, um, you know, problem to humanity. Um, and then you sort of have misinformation spreading faster than it does now. Um, you know, it, it, it's all quite dystopian. Uh, and it feels like nobody's really grasping it. You know, that's what this Bletchley Summit is supposed to be about. But it needs a, a global coalition of governments to work out what the new set of rules will be and what the, you know, the um, what sort of guidelines and what, what red lines are for tech companies and how far they can go. And it's very hard to see, uh, you know, as we've been saying, in a world that is sort of more divided than ever, it's very hard to see how you're going to get a global agreement on something like that. So it feels like it's just it's slightly ungoverned. Nobody quite knows just how, how you know, how this might all end. I, you know, I recently spoke to uh, a bunch of um, tech companies who are sort of dealing with all this. And what's really interesting is it's always the people who are closest to it who are most terrified about what might happen. Um, and I sort of think we should probably take that on board. I think we should be a bit more alarmed. Dystopian. Matthew, do we all need to calm down? No, quite the opposite. I mean, I think it's probably too late already, um, you know. <laughs> And I'll give you an example. A friend of mine, she's a cookbook writer, and um, she found out the other day that one of her cookbooks has been fed into a data set of 183,000 books have been fed into this um, data set, which is training up artificial intelligence without her permission. So she didn't give the authority for it to be used. And it's a very personal memoir. And, um, and, and this is happening all the time. You know, the, the, the heads of Apple and Meta claim that they just take stuff off the internet that's copyright free. It's not true, as this uh, report by The Atlantic has shown. They're actually taking stuff that people have made. And, and it's important to remember the human element of all this. There are people making the decisions behind AI. The heads of Apple and Meta are the ones signing off on these decisions, and they are the people that we need to hold to account. And, and it's been going on now for, for far too long. You know, for 30 years, we've had the internet completely unregulated. Governments have been incredibly slow to act on this kind of thing because there is no global cohesion. And it's ironic we're talking about this, you know, today when we're talking about the UN's lack of authority, which was formed 80 years ago after the threat of nuclear war and the, 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 you know, after the Holocaust to stop that ever happening again. This is exactly the same situation we find ourselves in. There's an urgency to create a, a global unified um, institution to combat this threat. And yet these global institutions are, are fundamentally flawed because it's so difficult in a fractured world, an increasingly fractured world, to get all these countries to agree on what should be done. And so I think we're probably too late. Uh, the only thing we can do in the meantime is individually, as Rishi said explained today, try and set up institutions to combat it and also absolutely hold these people to account. You know, Mark Zuckerberg, these famous people who make a lot of money stealing copyright from other people, and they'll then charge the end user, but they're not paying the people whose data, whose hard work is being fed into this uh, AI technology. And it's, a, it's an ongoing, complete outrage, which means, you know, which I'm glad to say uh, Rishi Sinek is dealing with it today, but it, it's, I'm afraid it's probably all too late. I, I wouldn't be surprised if, well, I don't want to go down that route, but, you know, it, it is, it, it's, it, it's, the other thing is it's, this is being controlled by very few people. You know, I don't know how AI works. I don't know if you do, Patrick, but... Uh, not really, to be honest with you, Matthew, but <laughs> I'm only a journalist. Well, so we're seeing, what we're seeing is a sort of new elite of people now um, having an incredible amount of control over the future of humanity. And who is holding these people to account? Nobody. Well, I'm glad Rishi Sunak is today, but it, it needs to be done, you know, in double time quick, because it's a bit like climate change. You can sort of little while's Rome burning discussing what you're going to do and then suddenly find it's just too late. Manveen, is there a positive case for AI? I mean, I know uh, I've never used it in a professional context, mainly because I'm too vain about my own overwrought prose. Um, but, you know, <laughs> do, you, do you ever find it useful in your work or do you just think steer clear because you don't know what's 
What's informing it? I mean, look, um, there are forms of AI which are augmenting people's roles. So they are making the jobs that we already do a little bit easier. Um, I, you know, I, I wouldn't trust ChatGPT to write copy or write a script for, for me. But um, at the same time, you know, we have relied on it for things like um, sort of sorting through information. So, you know, it's particularly with, say, the Ukraine war, you're getting so many feeds from different places that are sort of presenting you with um, uh, information, often in different languages. And there are now amazing um, tools which, which will allow allow you to sort of sift through that, which is great. You know, if you're a journalist, that sort of makes your job a little bit easier and it hopefully allows you to be more productive, um, which is brilliant. But there is a danger that you sort of get to the, a point where it's augmenting your job and actually, you know, you, you'll be able to be more productive. It's making the the economy better. Um, you, you know, there was an amazing study by I think the Toby, Tony Blair Institute who worked out that it could um, it could sort of increase the economic capacity of the country by some phenomenal sum. But the problem is what happens when they they go beyond just augmenting your job to replacing it. Um, and that, I think, is what we haven't begun to really work out yet. Um, and, you know, one of the things which is really alarming in the speech today is talking about what happens when you've replaced so many of the jobs that not only do you have an unemployment crisis, but you have a workforce who've forgotten how a lot of these jobs are done and who've forgotten, you know, don't even understand how the AI gets to where it does. So you, there is no accountability for it. You know, that this is AI which sort of, it almost thinks for itself because it's it's able to build on sort of previous models and mm. you can no longer you can no longer sort of tell it where the boundaries are because it's deciding them for itself now this is every author's worst nightmare and indeed debut author matt Chorley told me earlier he's literally had nightmares about this scenario a new book by Rachel Reeves, the Shadow Chancellor, has been found to contain examples of apparent plagiarism, including entire sentences and paragraphs lifted from other sources, including the students' favourites, Wikipedia, without acknowledgement. More than 20 examples were spotted by the Financial Times using manual checks rather than plagiarism detection software. So there could be more. It's worth saying that Rachel Reeves and her publisher have both said these were inadvertent mistakes that will be corrected in future reprints, and there are more than 200 references in her book. But Matthew, this is a, a real howler that this has managed to get through whatever happened. Well, she probably got chat GPT to write it in the first place. I mean, I, I hope she did because she shouldn't have time to write books. She should be getting ready for government. Um, but, you know, it would have been a clever thing to say, oh, yeah, sorry, I got I got a bot to write my book. So sorry, didn't check it. Uh, but she maybe she got a young researcher to, to write it who wasn't told at university you've got to check your sources. But, I mean, I, I love this kind of story. It's my absolute favourite kind of journalism because it's like, Ha ha, you know, you, you've been showing with your pants down. And um, and it's, I remember when I was a reporter on Evening Standard, we used to do the stories all the time because it does happen all the time, I'm afraid. You know, people are busy, they're lazy. They think, oh, I, I need a bit of, um, I don't know, copy. I'll just go to Wikipedia, copy, paste, deal with that later. And then you never get around to it. And the Financial Times must have had a great time going through. And they, and if you read the stories, you know, they relish in, in putting the paragraph that she used next to the paragraph from Wikipedia. And of course, it's exactly the same. Um, you know, it's, just, it, it, it's very, very funny and it's very, very embarrassing and it does happen all the time. I can um, name lots of people it's happened to, but I won't. Uh, you know, for, for, uh, you know, as we say uh, when we file a contentious bit of newspaper copy, please legal. Um, Manveen, <laughs> do you think Matthew's right? Should politicians be writing books? I mean, Rachel Reeves does have a lot on her plate already. Well, was, the, was the world crying out for a history of women in economics by Rachel Reeves? 
I mean, I can see why the publishers commissioned it. Mm. You know, it's it, it, here's the potentially the first female chancellor, if if um, if Labour get in the next election, writing about women's place in economics and how it's been ignored over the years. What turns out to be very ironic, though, as the FT point out, is that you know one of the themes in the book is that women haven't been acknowledged for their work for years. That men have taken the credit, and then there she is, literally taking the credit. For people's musings on Wikipedia, or, or you know, I think there's a Hillary Ben Forward to um to a, a a book at some point, which is again sort of reproduced without even, you know, without sort of even a polite change of an adjective or something. So, um, it's just it's very ironic, and I think that'll probably haunt her for a while. Um, just just going back to our AI chat though, I did think for the FT not to use the AI, which could have made their life much easier, the the plagiarized detecting software. And actually have somebody sitting there painstakingly going through presumably every sentence and finding where it might have been sourced from. Uh, I thought, God, well done. That's that's old school. And that's not you know, all credit to that journalist, because that must have been a hell of a couple of days. <laughs> well, 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 just goes to show not even uh, not even esteemed newspapers like The Times and The Financial Times uh, fully trust AI to do the work that a human <laughs> can do better. I mean, uh, Helen on the text presents this slightly uh, terrifying scenario. Patrick, do we know that volunteers haven't edited Wikipedia having read Rachel's book? That's, you know, infinite regress of edits upon edits upon plagiarism upon plagiarism. I mean, Matthew, it's worth just stressing Rachel Reeves and their publishers, uh, their spokespeople say this is an honest mistake, but, you know, presidents of Germany and politicians on the continent have resigned for less. It derailed Joe Biden's election campaign in 1988. Could this be serious uh, stuff for Rachel Reeves? Well, she's made a mistake. She should immediately have said, oh, God, quite right, held her hands up and said, yes, you're absolutely right. I was in a hurry. I got a researcher to do it, and I should have checked it. May I call her? Because it's, it's so obvious to see that that's what's happened. You, you just need to look at the, the book and the, and the text that she's ripped off the internet. It's exactly the same. Oh, a couple of words changed here and there. But so, so it's, it's, it's that classic thing. It's the handling of the scandal that could be her undoing. Because if she had immediately been clever about it and said, yes, you know, I was testing out this new AI program and I got it to write my book, then people would have been amused and forgiving. But I think if you start lying about it and saying, oh, no, no, I, that's not what happened, she's, it, this is going to haunt her for a long time after. So she needs to make a quick decision as to how to deal with it and, and, and do it now and be honest and make a joke of it because it doesn't really matter, I don't think, that much. Um, but it could, do, it could harm her if she lets it hang over her. That was Manveen Rana and Matthew Bell. Remember, you can listen to Manveen every day on our sister podcast, Stories of Our Times. Make sure you go to the Times Radio app to listen to that or alternatively, get it wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also read it in the Times, pick up a copy of the paper or get yourself a digital subscription. Next up, who or what can fix Britain's prisons? When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. 
Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program. You're listening to the Times Redbox podcast. Now it's time for this. The Big Thing on Times Radio. Britain's prisons are full. That's according to the latest statistics from the Ministry of Justice out this morning. Nearly 86,000 people are currently in prison in England and Wales. In the longer term, they could predict that that number could reach as high as 106,300 prisoners by March 2027. We were expecting an update from the department, but the publication of those very latest figures have been delayed. The government had planned to build an additional 20,000 prison places by the mid-2020s to meet this increased demand, but it was reported last week that opposition to planning proposals from MPs had set that back to at least 2030. So the sector is now reaching a crisis point, just as the government promises to crack down on crime. Well, the new Justice Secretary, Alex Chalk, has promised reform, but he's not the first minister over the last two decades to make that claim. We need a new approach, one that is tough on crime and tough on the causes of crime. So I'm clear we need wholesale reform, and I'm convinced that with the right agenda we can be world leaders in change. Prisons may be enormous compared to what they used to be, they've still got more people in than they're ever designed for. Our prison system has had some pressures, but it is not in a crisis. I absolutely acknowledge that in some prisons the situation has got worse, and for many prisoners the situation is not as it should be. It is very difficult to turn a prison around in a year. It's, it's a long-term process, but unless we set an ambitious project, we're not going to make progress. In the coming weeks, I will be launching my vision for prison reform to 2020 and beyond. The white paper will be the biggest blueprint for the overhaul of our prisons in a generation. Today we're launching our prison strategy white paper, which will set out our vision for a modern prison state that protects the public from dangerous criminals and cuts crime by rehabilitating and reforming offenders. At the heart of our long-term plan for prison reform that I'm announcing today is a simple mission, cut crime. So why can't our politicians fix our prisons? Get people out of them, make sure they rehabilitate those who are locked up in them. There are so many questions that are hidden and concealed by the tough talking about crime and punishment we so frequently hear from politicians of all parties. Well, one person who knows more than anybody about just how difficult it is to strike that balance is Sir David Liddington. He's one of the people who've taken on that unenviable task in government. He was just his secretary under Theresa May, even trickier. Uh, I asked him just how he approached the job. I think that there's an endemic problem with how we look at penal policy that's applied under government after government. And it's basically this, that parliamentarians, ministers, MPs, I think reflecting the view of the general public, look to try to gain popularity and votes by upping the rhetoric and upping the sentences passed by the courts, taking a tough line on criminals, something that always is popular. 
but don't then give priority to having a penal system, including the number of prison places, uh, that the rhetoric and, and the policy actually requires you to deliver. And prisons are always going to be less popular for public spending to say schools or hospitals are, are, are going to be. And, and then in addition to that, we, we've never had a serious discussion, I think, in Britain about what we want the prison population to be. It, it's generally known we imprison more criminals than most other European countries, even in the US now, the number of people being imprisoned in, in some states where they've introduced different sorts of penal policies is coming down, Texas, for example. And not in my judgment, to really consistently tried to get the balance right between custodial and non-custodial sentences, nor have we really focused sufficiently upon prison regimes and actually having a programme when you've got somebody in prison, actually ensure that when they come out, they can read and write. They have some qualifications to go into a job. And they don't just drift back to old criminal habits with old criminal friends again. So I think there's a number of different problems that come together. And basically, I think it, it, it's often been too easy for, for people not directly involved in responsibility for, the, for prisons and penal policy to say out of sight, out of mind. What the public is interested in, the voters are interested in are, are other subjects, health, schools pensions, housing, that sort of thing. And it's almost a cliche to say there are no votes in prison reform, there are no votes in prison conditions, but there are lots of votes in policies that drive up the prison population. Yeah, I think I think that there's a disconnect actually in, in, in the Home Office is responsible for policing and will say we need um, you know, tougher, a tougher line, police need to, to, to get more people into court, we have tougher sentences, and, and often respond to genuine public outrage about particular cases. And yet it's the Justice Ministry that ends up having to provide the prisons and the Treasury says, well, actually, no, we've got um, uh, things like hospitals that uh, uh, or defence that the, the, the government collectively and number 10 think are more important. And my, my own view uh, of this is that we should be sending fewer people to prison than we do now. That in turn means that we need to have a system of non-custodial penalties that the judges and public opinion have some confidence in. I, I can remember when I was Justice Secretary having a conversation with a senior judge about the fact that sentence lengths had been drifting up and people would be sent to prison for very short terms for what, relatively speaking, were fairly minor offences. He said to me, look, the problem is this. If I've had somebody sent to me in court who's had on their 10th conviction and we've tried everything else. We've tried fines. We've tried probation. And, you know, none of this seems to deter them from further crime. So what option do I have except to send them to prison? That tells me that we, as a country, we have got to find a ways to make non-custodial penalties more effective. And I've seen some, some, some good work in civil courts, in family courts rather than criminal courts, about how tackling people's drug and alcohol addictions under close supervision can actually start to shift people onto the right track rather than to just let their lives spiral downhill and get into further trouble. So there are some interesting approaches of being tried in other countries success successfully. We, we, we ought, I think, to, to look at that. If public opinion and political opinion is determined to say, right, we, that, none of that works, we need to send people to prison in the numbers or even bigger numbers than we do now, then the logic of that is that 
cabinet, whether it's a Labour or Conservative cabinet, has to sit down and actually say, how are we going to fund this? Because you can't just just continue to pack people into overcrowded prisons where they sit in cells most of the day. They're not educated. They're not trained into employable skills for the day when they, they are released, as the overwhelming majority are going to be one day. And you just perpetuate this cycle of, of reoffending. So I think it does need, ideally, a cross-party decision to hold a truce on the, the trade offers to who's going to be toughest on crime and actually have some do some serious thinking, looking at foreign experience too, about what is going to work to reduce the rate of re-offending and to make sure that those people we send to prison actually then have a regime that makes it less likely they'll commit more crimes when they come out. Have any of the policies introduced over the past decade or so worked or necessarily been good ones? Have league tables for prisons helped at all? I think that I think that uh, the league tables. I mean, they're, they're useful as a tracker, though. Uh, of, of things like the incidence of violence within prisons, number of assaults on officers, number of assaults on other inmates. I think that uh, the independent inspectorate of prisons is a really good idea. And, and one of the things I did in my time as justice secretary was to introduce the system whereby the chief inspector of prisons could make an urgent referral to the justice secretary to demanding an immediate action plan if something was found on an inspection that was particularly dreadful. I think that the policy of devolving greater power and responsibility to prison governors, which Michael Gove initiated in his time and which I uh, and my successor David Gork um, sort of continued with, it was, was the right way to go because it gives to the people on the spot, you know, dealing with a particular population of prisoners, the, the, the authority and, and 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 the freedom to take some initiatives. And there's some really really good local work that goes on. I I saw cases of prison officers who go way beyond what their standard you know, duty would would be, and actually, when prisoners get into the end of their sentence trying to link them up with employers in the local economy who were prepared to take them on, give them a second chance to get into a job when they got out, out outside the prison gates. I've seen some really good examples of prisoners in their final year of sentence when they were eligible for something called um, rockles, the, 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 bit, the bit of jargon. But it, it's basically uh, you're allowed out of prison for a daily commute to a place of work. And you then have to return to prison to sleep in the evening. And it was just, again, getting people into the habit of having to travel to work, come back again, but get that experience of employment and the disciplines of employment, rather than just shove them out of the gates and pat them on the back and say, go and lead a law-abiding life now. So there's some really good stuff that prison governors and prison officers are doing unsung week by week. And we need to encourage that and really spread best practice across uh, our, our entire penal system. And just finally, David, as unpopular as this will be, and indeed has been among Conservative MP, planning for prisons in three new areas were opposed by Tory MPs over the last three years. Is the answer, as our prisons are full, fewer people incarcerated in the prisoner state, or is it a better prisoner state, a new prisoner state, to house safely and cleanly the growing prison population? It, it, it's both. Um, I, I, I do believe that um, 
we should be sending fewer to people, fewer people to prison than we we do now. That, but the, the commentary to that is you do need effective non-custodial punishments that the courts and the public feel they have trust in. But but also look at our prisons. Some of the prisons in city centres in London and Birmingham, and Manchester, and elsewhere are absolutely decrepit. Um, you know, they were built in Victorian times. They are not suitable for modern security purposes. They're not suitable for the sort of programs of education and uh, employment related training that we want prisoners to take now. And they cost the earth to maintain and keep clean. Act what we should be doing is closing those prisons down, selling off what would be very expensive real estate for development in the centre of those cities, using that money that you'd be getting into Ministry of Justice uh, to fund uh, the new prisons on on, on new sites or or next to some existing prisons on the edge of of, of cities or near near towns uh, and actually have a better estate uh, as well as one that that houses houses fewer people. Let's bring in Judith Feline now, who's worked in five prisons over 10 years. Hi, Judith. Uh, Good morning. And we're also joined by Andrew Morris, who spent 12 years in prison despite only being given a four-year sentence. Hello, Andrew. Good morning, Patrick. Judith, you heard David Liddington's interview there. Do you agree with his broad diagnosis of the problems in the prison system? I really do. I mean, we're clearly prisons are full, so it's evident we're sending too many people to prison. But the issues that flow from that are the fact that you can't then do much with those uh, people when they're there. So you don't get the opportunity to improve their thinking skills, perhaps, or, or their education. You don't give them better skills so that when they're released, they've got a better chance of doing something productive with their lives. And that's the really frustrating thing for people that work in prisons, because, you know, we want, we're there because we want people to help them to change. And that becomes really difficult when you just haven't got the, the spaces in education because you've got too many men in the prison. Um, and I particularly agree with his point that power should be devolved to governors. Andrew, if you don't mind, would you mind talking us through your experience of living on the prison estate? Do you recognise it when people say, look, it's... Do you recognise the words of people who say it's broken, crumbling, overcrowded? Does all that ring true from your experience? I I mean, I listened intently to what David Lidlington was saying, and I've heard so many people talk about the endemic problems and best practice and all this kind of stuff. And I don't know if you remember, but once upon a time, David Cameron was talking about the bonfire of the quangos and trying to re uh, kind of revamp uh, things and, and kind of revitalize the way we do things in terms of prisons, but also in the criminal justice system more generally. And that bonfire never took place. One of the things that I've been advocating for is a change in the way that the independent monitoring boards, the prison probation ombudsman, the chief uh, chief inspector of prisons do their work because I think that they do some interesting work, but they're siloed in their bunkers and they do that very individually rather than doing it collectively and together in a way that would be more useful to people in prison. Uh, It's always really interesting and very telling to hear people like David Lidlington, and no disrespect to the man, I don't know him, um, but people talking about stuff after they've left office, but they never do anything really positive and productive to change the narrative while they're in office. And that's the, the thing that really does frustrate me. Well, because, Judith, and you must have had many moments where privately you, you must have thought this, there are no votes in prisons is a famous political cliche. No one is ever going to stand up before the country, before swing voters, and say, you know what, our prisons are squalid, they're doing the men and women inside them a disservice. 
if we want to be safer, there needs to be fewer people in them and they, the conditions need to be better. There are no votes in that, even if, as Andrew just said about David Lidington, after they leave office, they'd say, well, yeah, of course, that's eminently sensible. We must do that. But, but would there be votes in it if we couched it in terms of being better able to help people lead law-abiding lives on release if prisons had more resources and better facilities? Because that's actually what it means. Um, I appreciate that the public don't worry too much about what goes on behind the big walls. Um, and I understand if you're a victim of crime, uh, then you, you just want people to be punished. I understand that completely. But when you work for the prison service, uh, you want to see people leaving prison with better education, with better skills and with the ability to support themselves once they get out without going back to crime. Uh, Claude in Westminster has just texted in. He says, one week the media and politicians talk about the need to be tougher on crime with longer sentences and more offences, like shoplifting getting custodial sentences. The next week, it's all about how there are too many people being imprisoned. The fact is, there are not adequate supervised alternatives. Andrew, what sort of alternatives would they be? You know what, the problem is with our justice system is it's very slow to react and it's very slow to correct itself. I mean, right now, as an ex-indeterminate sentence prisoner myself, there are about just under 3,000 people serving indeterminate sentences in prisons up and down the country who probably shouldn't be there anymore because it was deemed that that, that sentence was unlawful. Um, we, we can't do anything or we're not doing anything retrospectively. There's 3,000 places that could be um, uh, made available already. The other thing is I'm hearing you know people talking about 20,000 additional places. Why additional places? We can't manage the ones that we've already got. Um, you know, open prisons are... Interesting places. I used to call them the land of milk and honey because when I first heard about um, open prison, I, I was excited. And David Lidington referred to Rottle, which stands for release on temporary license, um, day release effectively. Um, but when I got to those places, it was really difficult to achieve Rottle. Rottle is a really, it's one of those things that's used as a bit of a carrot and a stick. I think there is so much really that needs to just change in terms of the way we, we do things. We could learn things from Norway and Finland and some of these places that have incredibly low uh, uh, um, uh, prison numbers in comparison to the amount of people that we lock up each, each year. Um, I think really root and branch form is what's what's needed, but the trouble is nobody has the the you know the broad enough shoulders to take that on. We've had so many justice secretaries, and not one of them, with the exception at the moment of Alex Short, who seems to be going down the right path, has taken on uh, this you know this this really difficult hot potato and said, right, actually, you know what, this is what we're going to do. The other thing that is missing from this is lived experience, and I'm not trying to throw myself out there necessarily as a person. Um, that has all the, the, you know, the macro solutions to this. I don't, but lived experience has to be at the heart of what we're doing with, with prisons in order to make it change. And one thing I always say to people constantly uh, when we get worried about people not wanting to listen to the reasons that this is important is that 18 billion plus is what it costs our economy every year in reoffending. So we need to get this right. Judith, I asked this question of... David Liddington, has anything got better? So you worked in the prison um, service, I hope this is right, for 10 years in five different prisons. Did anything get better in that time or has the story been one of, you know, inerectable decline? Well, that's a difficult question. Um, it, it's difficult to say and, and I think overall it was a sense of things getting worse um, and that's, that's a really sad thing to say um, and I hate to sit here and say that but 
Um, you know, we haven't talked about the staff in prisons, and I, I, I wouldn't want to, this discussion to finish without me saying how hard prison officers work. Um, and I have tremendous admiration, really, for the way in which they do their jobs. And I've seen such compassion from prison officers dealing with very vulnerable and, and confused uh, prisoners. And, and I wouldn't want us to have this discussion without recognising the role that they play every day in dealing with the people who are in custody. Um, you know, we're talking today about prisons, but I think we need to be very cautious that, yes, I think we need to send less people to prison, but the probation service can't cope uh, if we have more people dealing with their punishment as a, as a, a community custodial, a community sentence rather than a custodial sentence. So we can't, we can't fix prisons by breaking probation. That would be very dangerous. Can't fix prisons without breaking probation. We've already spoken at length about the lack of resourcing. I mean, it's no wonder, Andrew, that you look at the statistics about, say, self-harm in prisons, 64,348 self-harm incidents in the 12 months up to this June. That's up 21% from the previous 12 months. Everything seems to be breaking in this system, not least the morale and mental health of many of the men trapped inside, which, as we've been discussing, you, Judith, and I, means people are even less likely to be rehabilitated and to go out into society as productive and and rehabilitated people. Yeah, and you know, I mean, I, I'm not going to sit here and kind of, I'm not on a sort of a Demonas um, kind of uh, trajectory. I think that safety and, and what Judith has raised is really crucial. But one of the things that I said, even in prison, because I was accused at times of being pro-criminal, I don't have pro-criminal attitudes. Actually, um, I realised that I deserved to go to prison and it was inevitable for the offence that I committed. But that aside, I think that in, in many respects, open prison is a waste of time. I think that uh, certainly for me, in, in terms of Rottel, I would much rather have been in a local prison, if I could have been, um, and slumming it effectively, than being uh, in, a, you know, ensconced in a corner, a picturesque corner of Buckinghamshire, as I was, uh, having to find the money each time to bridge that gap and get home to spend time with loved ones. Um, it, it's an incredibly difficult place to be, and I, I think that we ask too much, I think, of staff, but also of prisoners, and. Until that changes, nothing really will, will, will change. It's worrying that we're having to look for additional prison places when some of the, the ones that we've already got are crumbling. It's worrying that there aren't enough staff on the landings. It's worrying that, um, you know, that, that safety and, and um, violence is, is increasing in some of these places. It's worrying that people are escaping from prisons, um, you know, because there are a lack of, of staff. But again, and I just want to repeat one more time that lived experience for some reason doesn't seem to be at the height of this conversation. And until that happens, and, and you know, the system and the politicians learn from people who are campaigning around this, people like Raphael Rowe, people like Breakthrough and Standout, and all of these organisations that are doing fantastic work with very little in terms of support and resources, um, I'm afraid nothing much will change. Judith, a final thought from you. What's the one thing our politicians could do to mitigate this crisis, make it better. Just one thing. Well, I think we're going, I think we're seeing it, which is send, those stopping short sentences, which will make a big difference. So there you have it. That's why we can't fix our prisons, and that's how we might finally pull it off. Remember, I'm back for one more podcast tomorrow. I'll see you then. But in the meantime, make sure you like, share, subscribe, and follow wherever you get your podcast from.